This episode of Upstream in Perspective is brought to you by IHS Markets Upstream Insight. Our team of industry experts analyze the interplay of geopolitical structures, government priorities, corporate strategies, and global markets and technologies to deliver forward-looking solutions that lead to more informed and efficient decisions. These solutions are available via recurring reports, interactive analytics, robust data sets, and bespoke engagements with experts. Learn more about our offerings at www.ihsmarket.com energy. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm Jessica Nelson, joined by my co-host, Hill Vaden. Hill, welcome to another episode. Thanks, Jessica. Today, we're joined by Roger Dewan and Justin Jacobs from our financial and capital markets team. Uh, would you guys like to introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about your background and what you do at IHS Market. Sure. Uh, I've been uh, at IHS Market and or uh, some previous companies for about 25 years, focusing on mostly the oil and gas sector uh, for the financial uh, world, for asset managers, uh, private equity and bankers. So try to address the need of the financial community in understanding the sector and how to invest and try to help them in actionable uh, ideas. Uh, Justin Jacobs, I work with uh, Roger here in Washington, D.C., Working with the financial community focused on North America uh, and a lot of kind of emerging energy transition issues, uh, which I think we'll talk about today. Um, so yeah, looking forward to it. Great. We're also joined today by Brianne Doherty, who's one of our product directors for financial and capital markets portfolio. So Brianne, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. So we have a full house today. Um, and, and Hill, I think we're going to spend some time diving into some questions around a few topics that we've kind of kicked around on the podcast in the past, right? Um, yeah, I think so. And, and also to, you know, try and, you know, at the start of 2020, look at, you know, re- really what the financial sector is going to be paying attention to in, in upstream and energy as a whole. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's a hot topic. I mean, I think we mentioned last time, or, or maybe in a couple of podcasts ago, the energy sector uh, fell to its lowest weighting in the S&P 500. Um, and investors started questioning the ability of, of ENP companies to deliver value and growth. So coming into 2020, you know, we're still kind of in this out of favor um, position um, and some companies trading at crisis level multiples. And now even new, new more existential questions are being asked around the industry's place in a carbon constrained world, um, which I think we've all seen in the news. In fact, recently, uh, Larry Fink and his firm BlackRock, the world's largest fund manager, published separate letters to CEOs and clients suggesting that climate change will reshape the financial system. So, Roger, let's start there today. Um, have climate concerns and ESG grown enough in importance to drive actions of the financial community going into 2020? Yes, I think there have been a crescendo of uh, discussion around these issues of ESG and an energy transition over the last two years. But uh, here we felt it really uh, very strongly in the last year, where the questions uh, from our clients and the need to provide that type of analysis has gone exponentially uh, up. Uh, it has been already the case in Europe, but I think the United States has kind of joined that conversation. And what we're seeing here is uh, the climate risk uh, are really now uh, on the agenda of the financial industry. And that is uh, impacting very quickly the ability to finance and uh, to uh, the funding uh, of uh, of energy project. So the letter this week, in a way, uh, put that uh, front and center. Do you find that that's weighing in on your actual commodity price outlook yet? Or is it really just focused on valuations of those upstream projects and the companies themselves? Have we yet started to see it trickle through to the commodity complex? 
Not much, actually. And, and you're right. This is an important question because what we're seeing here is crescendo of discussion around that uh, is not uh, reflective of what's happening in the energy business. And uh, demand is still growing. Uh, oil markets are not driven on a daily basis and gas prices are not driven by ESG concerns. But the ESG concerns are really creeping up into the investment sentiment and in the willingness to own that sector in the long term. So there is this dichotomy between the short term really doesn't really have implication, but in the long term, very much so. But the discussion has really moved to that long term versus the, the demand growth that we have in the short term. Justin, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, I think it has, uh, I agree with that, but I think it has been part of the conversation over the last year. So demand has been pretty weak over the last year. I think there has been some debates over how much the energy transition, the uptake in EVs and something like that has fed has through to that weak demand. I mean, our view is it hasn't really very much. Um, it's really been an economic cycle driven demand slowdown, but uh, it's clearly, it comes up when we meet with clients, people ask us, you know, do you view this as something that's, um, you know, just a, a part of the oil market now where yeah. these uh, kind of demand side uh, uptakes on the low carbon side is, is a permanent fixture tamping down demand. Yeah. Um, our view is that there's still some some strength uh, for the next few years on demand. Correct. I mean, this is a big debate right now that if demand in, you know, in, in 2019, which was very weak for oil, was it a cyclical or structural uh, uh, issue and the structural issue obviously coming from energy transition. Uh, and the data, as Justin said, really tell us it's much more a cyclical issue around economic cycles rather than structural. If you think about the demand displacement created by EVs, uh, so we have right now on the road about 10 million EVs globally for 1.6 billion vehicles. So on the margin, it doesn't really yet have an impact uh, maybe it's twenty thousand dollars a day, but that's not where the impact is. I think the, the impact is coming through the equity value, uh, and uh, financial markets uh, tend to uh, react well in advance of these technological changes and start to try to price them. So the question around the multiples and the strategies of the big companies uh, around ESG now is front and center, and this is how it comes in. I think the financial sector is actually. A bigger short-term catalyst for action on the industry side more than government regulation because that's kind of actually lagged i think uh the pressure from the financial side we were talking yesterday about um you know some of the msci ratings that i think blackrock referenced in its letter and i think tesla and we we picked two companies at random and tesla and suncor were, were both ranked equally in terms of esg ratings so it sounds like investors are still kind of you know, unsure of, of exactly, you know, how to measure some of this. So it, does that delay some of the, or, or make it harder to act on some of the stuff in 2020? I think it does. I think it's short term, that's a big, that's a big issue. Uh, I mean, right now there's a sprawling uh, kind of ecosystem of ESG data and people are kind of picking and choosing different metrics and there's no real ability to benchmark companies against each other. And as you mentioned, these these companies get equal ratings based on you know very different kind of measurements. So I think short term that is a, a big issue. Uh, I think that will work itself out over time. Uh, there's a lot of different disparate efforts to standardize these measurements. So I think that's uh, over time. I think it'll work itself out, but short term it's it's a big issue. Yeah, I agree. I think what you measure and how you measure it is going to be important. Mm -hmm. So uh, 
ESG has more than uh, than climate and carbon issue, uh, but there will be indexes really looking at measuring uh, the carbon footprint of each company, and obviously the uh, the oil and gas and coal right now really is in the eye of the storm. Uh, how this is measured? Are you measuring thus just the emission from production, or are you uh, measuring the full emission of uh, what you got out of the ground, uh, what we call uh, tier three uh, uh, emissions. Uh, you know what what you're consuming in your car doesn't get allocated to the oil company which produced the oil or not. So there's a lot of questions around that. So we're early on, uh, but what's important, I think, in terms of understanding the timing versus you know the timing of the demand shift, which is very slow and very incremental, versus the impact of technological change and policy change and, and, and how it's reflected, this technological change reflected in the valuation through the financial sector is really important. And the squeeze is starting to happen early on, correct? So if you think about the big IOCs for a second, uh, they're all trying to have a strategy of, about how to bring values and value together, correct? They're trying to meet the shareholder demand. They're about the company who have the uh, highest uh, yield return uh, in the stock market between five and six percent and at the same time they're uh, telling their shareholders that they will uh, become greener and the question is how do you deliver five six percent into a different business model that you have not yet discovered so if we think about it though as far as the pace of transition i think that what i'm hearing here is it used to be back in the day that if we were in a low commodity price environment, then that meant growth for those commodities. That at the end of the day, you're going to make a decision as to what demand is going to be created because these are cheap resources. We're looking at an extremely low global gas price environment right now and the oil price environment, although it's stronger than it was a couple of years ago, it's not where it was quite a while ago. We do think that this momentum from the financial community, even in the absence of maybe large policy being put in place, that this momentum from the financial community has the capacity to drive this forward, even though we're in this low hydrocarbon price environment? Yes, I think there's fundamental uh, problem is how does financial market prices technological change, correct? And how do you translate that to the value of the companies, both the one in the technology side and the one in the energy side, correct? And that's what we're seeing right now is you're having, you're starting to see a transfer of value well ahead of the transition in terms of the demand side. Mm -hmm. And how you navigate that over the next five years will make and break some of these companies. Again, I think the example of Tesla is quite interesting. So Tesla's value now is pretty much the whole rest of the auto sector while they're producing a small fraction of the cars <laughs> that the, the whole system is producing, correct? So the whole value has, tran uh, has transitioned already well before all of these other manufacturers are already uh, transitioning the technology. Yeah, and I think you can already see that today in the way IOCs are investing. You know, a lot of their short-term focus is still on the core oil and gas business, and you see that you know 90% plus of, of, capex. of capex is still going to this business. But that incremental 10% that you know 10 years ago was going towards you know Arctic exploration or you know new heavy oil <laughs> processing kind of capacity and those kind of investments where you're trying to kind of plant some flags and or creating platforms for future growth, that investment is now going into batteries, uh, you know, building out, starting to plant, plant the seeds of 
you have uh, biofuels or power side utility kind of integrated businesses. So I think that's where they're kind of starting to build the platforms of future growth. So it's a it's a long-term process and these are companies with long-term time horizons, but you're starting to see the impacts on the IOC side today in that regard. Yeah, and I think the low prices also have had an impact. So if you look at exploration, for example, exploration budget have really plummeted over the last five years. Discoveries have plummeted. So the question, have they just plummeted because of low oil price? Is it just because of shale where you have discovered a lot of resources and you don't need to go discover? Or you're changing the business model of these big IOCs and you're basically going to focus on producing from a small number of areas uh, where you have resources and you're not really thinking 20, 30 years in terms of replenishing your uh, your reserve. Yeah, just to add, I mean, shale is kind of an ideal investment for them in this environment because it's it's a quick, uh, you know, it's a quick payback on your investment. Uh, it's very flexible, so you can move in and out and ramp activity up and down in response to both commodity prices, but also, you know, whatever kind of uh, changes come on the regulatory front or, you know, from the financial community. Uh, on some of these energy transition issues. So I think that's why you see you know, a lot of investment going into the Permian and other shale from, from the assets. Well, in looking at that, the, those shale producers that have in some, well, t- totally upended some of the, the, the oil price markets, you know, going back to 2015 and, and before in Roger, as we look at, you know, 2019, we're looking for, for, for good news in a sense, if, you, if you're relying on commodity prices to, uh, to, to, to pay your workers and whatnot. You know, and this is an, an out of favor sector, as we've discussed on this podcast uh, many times before, and that access to capital markets has changed, whether ESG related or just the ability to generate uh, near term returns. You know, so, so we look back a few months, Roger, we've seen bombings in the Middle East uh, that, that financial markets, at least in terms of commodity price, have largely shrugged off the IMOs, uh, well telegraphed changes to the bunker fuel rules. Um, so far, hasn't really seemed to influence things. So, so, so where are the bright spots as we look forward, you know, for, from a commodity price, for, for, for one reliant on a higher commodity price to, to, to manage. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we're still in a phase of uh, supply surplus, correct? So the, uh, the the sharp increase in production we had in, in the U.S. in 2018 has really had a big impact on, the, on oil markets. And if you look at 2019, uh, our balances show that actually a, a surplus has been created, despite the fact that we lost about three plus three and a half million barrels per day between Venezuela and Iran over the last 18 months. So even with a big uh, disruption, political disruption, uh, uh, physical disruption of oil in two of the largest producers, Venezuela and Iran, uh, we're still, we're producing faster than we were consuming. Obviously, the demand was very weak in the first part of 2019, and that had a big impact. The cyclical uh, uh, nature of uh, of demand here played a lot. The whole issue around trade wars, uh, a manufacturing recession that we had in 2019, uh, that we hopefully see stabilizing and slightly improving in 2020, are the backdrop to that uh, weakness in uh, in overall oil markets. When you look specifically about the geopolitical risk in uh, 2019, something uh, strange happened, correct? So uh, after the Afkake attack, when we've seen a large disruption, which was temporary, correct? The market really shrugged off political risk. And to a certain degree, for some time, we had what I would call a geopolitical risk discount, where the perception was that, well, nothing worse can happen. And 
uh, on terms of supply disruption, and it all might happen on the other side, meaning that we might make a deal with Iran, lift sanction, and see another two million barrels per day coming into the market. So we had a period where prices were discounted actually for geopolitics. Since then, I think the market has readjusted. And when you look at the relationship between Iran and, and the United States, it's not a happy one. And there is a real risk of tit-for-tat escalation during 2020. So you need to readjust your risk around that. But the market is very much in the mood that demand is weak, even if it's stabilizing. So we will price risk only when it appears, not in advance. Uh, and that's kind of new. Shale does part of that, but also the fact that you're in a low um, demand environment works out. There is one last kick in 2020 that, uh, Justin, maybe you want to talk about, is that actually even if supply in, in, in North America is slowing down, globally is uh, uh, we're seeing a big bump in supply. Yeah, I think uh, you're kind of seeing a lot of projects that enter the pipeline uh, when oil prices were higher are actually starting to, to materialize um, in a profitable way in a low-price environment because um, costs have been ratcheted down so much. So you're seeing, starting to see some growth finally you know, after a long time come out of Brazil, uh, a lot of growth out of uh, Norway with the kind of Johan Sverdrup uh, mega project. Uh, you have Guyana coming online, the kind of newest member of the uh, oil producing club of nations. Um, and you have Canada. And you have Canada. You have Devolving some new uh, pipelines coming out of Canada. So you have a, a confluence of kind of different projects coming on um, at the same time, which is kind of offsetting some of the slowing, slower growth out of the U.S. So you, it's going to be a pretty strong year of, of growth uh, on the supply side still in 2020. And, and that's what's remarkable, I think. What we're seeing here is we're growing supply in the last three, four years at around two, two and a half million barrels per day uh, in an environment of $60, $65. Uh, and not only from the U.S. alone, also from the international side. So the whole industry, so the, in, the U.S. industry first adapted to that lower price. The global industry adapted to that lower price and you know managed to, uh, uh, to bring costs down to to have this project coming online at a time when demand is slowing down uh, uh, cyclically. We had a very strong demand between 15 and 18, and 19 is basically the full impact of that uh, trade war and that manufacturing uh, uh, recession. Talk a little bit more about demand, and, and you guys released a paper earlier this week that talked about a surprising and, and perhaps underreported part of the demand story, and that's around uh, China. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? analysis that your team did, and, and what does it mean for 2020? Correct. So um, most, of the most of the balances out there compare apple to oranges, correct? Everybody look at global supply, and they try to match it to the product demand. And we try to do to go a little bit deeper than that and really look at crude demand. So really, how much crude demand versus the crude supply? And I think we're probably the only one who really tried to do crude on crude balances. And when you look at that, uh, there is a strange phenomenon in 2019, which is really underreported. Is the fact the fact is China product demand maybe it's slowing down, but their crude appetite has not. And one of the reason is uh, there's two re two principal reasons behind it. One is there is a large increase in refining capacity, so we need to feed the new uh, refineries. So you have incremental crude coming from China. Obviously, it might have an impact on other refiners somewhere else in the world, 
we're running a little bit lower, but Chinese imports have grown. And when you're growing a system, you need to grow storage, pipelines, the whole supply chain, if you want, which add quite a lot of demand. And on top of that, uh, China has been using the lower prices and the fact that, uh, you know, uh, tension in the Middle East to uh, incrementally uh, increase its demand, its uh, storage uh, uh, fill rate for crude. So uh, China has been adding strategic storage at a very high clip in the last two years. And that added globally about what? 500,000 barrels, 400,000 barrels for the extra crude demand in 2019? Yeah, because if you think about where the market would have been without that kind of bump up of you know inventory storage out of China, you, know, you could have seen prices you know, fall a lot lower really than, than they did last year. So that's a big question for us is you know, how, how much of that holds up going into 2020. Yeah, was that trade? Uh, it's trade wars related, I think, to a lower degree, but it's really about uh, it's about energy security. It's right? about energy security because I think we see the same across all uh, uh, energy sources. I think they've done the same in, in gas and coal. So it looks like China feeling unsecure uh, in terms of its relationship with the United States and with what's happening in the Middle East. And, you know, that de uh, decoupling from the U.S. and the fact that the U.S. control kind of the, the, the ceilings, uh, the emphasis on uh, energy security has increased in terms of uh, governmental policy. And we see it in other places, too. For example, um, subsidizing, again, production in China to reduce the overall growth in um, an import requirement. So you're, you're having a strategic debate in China and storing oil uh, when oil is not very expensive seems to be the strategy. They've been building storage capacity at a very fast clip. They can do that fast and cheap. So, and they've been filling it. So in 2020, the question is, can they continue to incrementally grow that demand for strategic storage? And we're a little bit dubious that they can continue at that rate of growth. So we see a deceleration in the uh, in the buildup of strategic storage. Yeah, one of the reasons why is because they've had a goal for a long time now, of, similar to what you see in the IEA countries, of basically having a 90-day uh, imports cover. So you have strategic stocks that can cover 90 days of, of your imports in case of some kind of emergency or disruption in straight forward moves or whatever. Um, and they've actually gotten to right around that level. You know, it's, there's the system is very opaque, so it's hard to measure it exactly, but it appears that they've gotten pretty close to that 90-day cover level. So there's you know, a serious question over you know, whether they're going to continue building at that same, same pace or if they're going to take a pause. And I think a lot of that's going to be driven by commodity price environments. So if prices fall again, I think they'll probably continue to, to build up just to have that cushion. Um, or if tensions you know, kind of ratchet back up here going to 2020, you could see that pick up again uh, to, you know, uh, defend themselves against that. Um, so it'll be an interesting dynamic to watch in the market. So, yeah. So, so globally, it sounds like we're, we're looking at, at least in terms of oil price, some, you know, potential changes that, that may come with downside risk around that China demand uh, factor, and then some potential upside supply risk with, with these non-OPEC, non-US uh, kind of offshore projects, potentially, you know, adding uh, high volumes to the market. Yeah. If what I'm thinking about the price path for oil over the next two years. First, when you look at the big picture, 
2020, uh, we still have a surplus. And in the, uh, the wheel really turns when you start to see demand growing faster than supply. It really starts to happen in the second half of 2021. So I think we're close to the end of that uh, uh, bump in supply and demand coming back. So from the market point of view, that's a big deal, correct? At the, once, once you start to see demand growing faster than uh, supply, this is when you will start to see, again, OPEC being able to release more oil, etc. That becomes in itself a bullish environment even if you're starting from a low base and then surplus. So I think that's a year away. And the near term in particular, I think, is where the uh, risk is in the next six months, both in terms of seasonal issue, um, first part of the year tend to be weaker, and two, this uncertainty about China, and number three, all of these projects ramping up as we speak, Zverdrup, uh, uh, Canadian oil coming up more, Brazil, etc., creating that surplus. And finally, that uncertainty around can OPEC continue, OPEC and Russia continue to manage uh, in an environment which becomes more constraining for next year before it gets better a year from now. Well, and looking more locally, uh, locally, given that we're recording here in the U.S., Justin, um, you know, we, Jessica and I have talked several times over the past you know, 12, 18 months with Reed Olmsted about uh, the, the Permian and, and U.S. onshore oil. Um, and Permian has all but become a household name, um, you know, on a global level. And in fact, I'm, I'm listening to another podcast right right now called Boomtown that, that tears apart, you know, each piece of the Permian Basin going, you know, all, all the way back to, to Santa Rita, um, which is, um, you know, sh shameless plug, but it's a great podcast for those of you not listening to it. Um, outside of the Permian, if we're looking at the U.S., you know, is, is there a better story in gas or, or um, is gas, what, what are we talking about for the gas producer? And I know that there is a lot of, uh, call it unintentional gas producers in the Permian with, with just the associated gas coming out of those wells. Yeah, well, I know Brianne can, can talk about this as well if she wants to, but, uh, I, you know, the gas picture is looking, you know, very oversupplied going into 2020. Um, you had very strong growth out of Marcellus in the Northeast uh, in 2019, and that kind of just some of that momentum carrying over into 2020. Uh, there's a, you know, there's a little bit of a lag between when, you know, on the demand side, uh, the pickup in LNG uh, export facilities is really the big uh, area of demand growth. There's a little bit of a, that needs to catch up a little bit before uh, it can soak up some of the demand growth. And uh, yeah, the associated gas coming out of the Permian um, and some of the other high oil growth areas um, has really, you know, fed a, a situation where the oversupply is, you know, even, you know, more severe than on the oil side. Uh, so I think that's going to take, you know, much of 2020 to work through. Uh, you know, our, our gas price forecast is still below $2 for, uh, for, the, for the full year. Um, we've seen, you know, a pretty weak price over the last few weeks on the gas side. On the other end of that, there is some, I think we have supplies slowing down and I think actually contracting a bit uh, in the Northeast going into 2021. Uh, if you do see some slowing in the Permian, which we see to a certain extent, it's I mean, still growing pretty fast, but we do see some tempering of growth uh, that could kind of tamp down some of the associated gas growth as well. And then you have some pickup on the LNG demand side as well. So things start to look marginally better in 2021, where you could have a, a little bit of an uplift. Uh, but uh, 
you know, it's a, it's a really, it's an oversupplied situation on the gas side on the U.S. And it just goes back to the, you know, the same thing on the oil side. There's just a lot of reserves and the way the shale system works, it can be very responsive to higher prices. So that's where this kind of issue of capital disciplines enters the conversation and how that, how that affects the trajectory of future growth out of the, you know, the U.S., both shale gas and, and tight oil. So that's kind of, that's one area where we're very focused going into 2020. And in the Permian Permian specifically, specifically, I think we've been hearing rumblings and I'd love to hear what you think about this. Is it getting gassier? So has the very best oiliest stuff been drilled and the high grading is, is starting to move a little bit further out and further out. And so for the amount of activity you're going to see, you're not going to see as much oil. So if oil prices are higher, for instance, and uh, we're actually unfortunately going to be getting more byproduct than we even had two years ago. Is that a real risk that we have going on over the next? I think, uh, well, I think the big issue is that the the center of growth in the Permian is shifting from the Midland, which tends to be much oilier, uh, you know, the gas oil ratio is much, much more towards the oil side. That growth is really shifting over to the Delaware side of the, the Permian Basin, which is uh, up in New Mexico and kind of further west. And those wells do tend to be much, much gassier. So that is that is going to feed into yeah, a situation where there's going to be more gas coming out of the coming out of the, uh, the Permian. And not just gas, NGLs and condensates and, and those kind of things as well. So the whole, you know, the whole spectrum of hydrocarbons coming out of the Permian is shifting towards the lighter end and the, and the gassier side. So that's uh, that's definitely something that's going to be that's going to weigh on gas markets, it's going to weigh on NGL markets as well. So even with a stronger oil price, the cash flow for some of these producers might not be looking that much better Yeah, because yeah. they're going to have more of this excess stuff that, let's be honest, is priced dirt cheap at the yeah. moment. <laughs> well, we saw, we saw negative gas prices. In yeah. It's in the Permian last year. You can't, you can't move that stuff. Totally undercuts the... Uh... When we think, I mean, this isn't the first time we've seen, particularly in the gas world, obviously, it's not the first time we've seen really low price environment, but kind of cycling back to the start of our conversation here where we this rising ESG conversation and I can't help but think this is different right because if there isn't the money out there to help keep these guys going in these downturns previously you could kind of go to market and and find the backstops that could keep you alive for the next couple of years and and push you through the downturn is it different this time so can we expect this really weak gas price environment which isn't just weak in north america but weak everywhere um across the globe at the moment is is this different well, it's a decapitalization I, I, I think financial markets are not uh, really open for all the shale producers. So they need to, to generate cash uh, uh, from operation and, and finance it that way. Uh, I think we've seen recently some high yield uh, issuance. So there is a little bit of a market reopening, but a very high interest rate. So this is really to refinance for the people who really need crunch cash, I would call it. But not really. I think... Uh, this capital discipline that the financial market are asking U.S. producer to really be able to deliver shareholders some return is here to stay. And it will constrain uh, production and production growth in the United States. And we see it certainly in 2020. We saw it in the second half of 2019. I think the numbers are pretty clear. And we will see it certainly in 2021 if we stay into that uh, 
uh, same price range that we have right now, let's say between sixty and seventy dollar uh, for uh, for Brent, fifty five, sixty five uh, for uh, for WTI. Yeah, in the short run, going this, uh, how much of it is ESG related? How much of it is you know other side? The way I, I guess I think of it is ponderance of the the difficulties that the shale industry is going through right now is because of recent very poor financial performance and very poor financial returns. So I see that as the main driver and the ESG issues playing out over the longer term, but also just kind of compounding those, those shorter term issues. So there's just no, it's just difficult to make like a compelling investment case when you have poor returns and you're exposed to this other, you know, much larger issue that you have no real control over. So I think if they can wrestle with this capital discipline issue and start showing some real discipline, you know, they can get a, a real boost here in the short run. And I think we've actually started to see that a little bit. Uh, for 2019, we have the sector as a whole generating free cash flow. It's a very small margin, but it's a big turnaround from you know years past. So it's you know 3%, something like that, free cash flow yields. And actually, if you look at the market performance of some of the EMPs uh, over the last few months, you saw a real turning point in October, uh, where from October through you know the last through this week through mid-January, you've actually seen some of the shale guys. EMP equities outperform both WTI and the broader S&P, which is uh, a total reversal from what we've seen from, from these guys in the last couple of years. So I think part of that is people are starting to give them a little bit of credit on the capital discipline front because you've seen share buybacks and some of that stuff. But it's very tenuous, and I think it can, if there's any kind of slippage uh, towards outspending or anything on the, on the EMP side, they'll lose that very quickly. Also, the multiples just got very, very, very low and they got very cheap to buy. So I think there's probably some, you know, value investors kind of just buying these guys up because it's uh, on paper, it starts to look very attractive. Yeah. And, and price have firmed up a little bit. And prices have up. Too. But I, the interesting thing to, thing to me is that uh, over the last couple of years, when we've seen a price uh, increase, when we've seen WTI go up, the EMPs have actually lagged that pretty severely, typically. and this last cycle of the last couple of months, we've seen the EMPs actually outperform the commodity, which is uh, which is interesting. I think that's I think the big reason why that for that is because they're getting some credit for capital discipline that they showed in 2019. So I think they'll probably take that as a, as a signal to continue down this path, which has implications for them on the equity side, but also the the U.S. growth story. So just. Uh, our self-described chief petro nerd, uh, Raul LeBlanc, just walked in the room, and I know that he's got, uh, you know, he's doing a lot of work on this with you and Roger, and I'm, I'm hoping he has some off-the-cuff, uh, un, uh, unrehearsed comments on this. Uh, Raul, you got any thoughts on, on the, the U.S. and gas producers versus oil producers as we're looking at 2020? I thought Brianne hit the, hail, uh, the nail on the head uh, with... It, are they out of time and out of luck and out of options, right? And and actually, we do think this time it, it's not that the uh, their situation is different, but you have continued low gas prices, and there are some some reasons for that above and beyond the normal <clears throat> normal kind of cycle. But there's too much gas, and it's really hurting people, and they're not going to be able to to access the finance that they frankly needed years and years ago, but were able to get. Uh, and so I do think we're going to see some bankruptcies, potentially, some potentially some some large bankruptcies. On the other hand, I, I don't see a way out for them. The Appalachia right now, I believe, is the tip of the spear in terms of this 
drive to show returns. And so you have companies there cutting CapEx by, you know, 25, 30, 40%. Okay, serious pullbacks in CapEx. And they already stopped growing largely um, uh, last year, right? So it's, in my mind, it's sort of the laboratory that we can look at to see if it's working. Unfortunately, they have prices working against them pretty dramatically. And so I think their efforts are going to be uh, even more difficult uh, than it is on, on the oil side, where I, I agree with um, what Justin was saying. We're, we're making some traction a little bit. It's still going to be a long slog. And if the prices go out from under them, they will have a problem. One of the things that we've noticed is it's easy to talk about making this transition, but you're, ass- you're ahead of your assets. The assets are still you know, uh, very high decline, uh, often uh, somewhat high cost. And so slowing down and, and transitioning to profitability takes more than saying it. And cutting your CapEx is only step one. And it's frankly not the painful step. The painful step often comes with the consequences of step one. So, uh, you know, it's a key year here. If they get bailed out because risks in the oil market temporarily, you know, raise the price and, and, and give them something, I think they'll be in a position to buy back a bunch of shares still on the cheap and do some things. But anyway, uh, I think the transition is happening, but it's just not the world of instantaneous uh, changes and be prepared to transition assets over a long time. Yeah, to that point, I would just add that uh, you saw a lot of hedging from the EMPs when prices uh, briefly kind of spiked after the Soleimani uh, uh, killing uh, in Iraq, uh, which, you know, things like that can help at the margins. And, uh, a lot, kind of, a lot. Yeah, a bit of a lifeline. Yeah, yeah. So uh, when you see incidents like that happening, I think you're going to see MPs hedge pretty aggressively into it, which actually acts to temper any kind of price reactions in these things. Well, that's for that's the oil shows, right? right? What about those who are either gas pure plays or predominantly gas? What, what is are, are they able to embrace anything right now? No, they've been they've been pushing toward liquids, right, wherever they could get them, or or toward ultra low cost. But um, and, and look, you know, gas wells cheap to operate. All right, so I really doubt that we're going to get down to the level of shut-ins. Okay, but you still have remember. Uh, a bunch of gas pipelines coming on in the Permian. Uh, there's still a bunch of flared gas. So you're going to get that in, and it's very subsidized gas. It's frankly bottom of the supply stack. So I, I can see a very tough time. I think there has to be, in a lot of ways, some sort of Darwin, Darwinian uh, winnowing of the of the gas players. And it'll happen. It, it may look ugly while it's happening. But again, gas is a great commodity with, a, 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 I think, a a good long-term future here. And so I think uh, we will be back. It just could be ugly for, for investors for a while. All right. Well, There's a lot there. And Jessica, I'll hand it back to you. And I'll, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the, the, the questions around oil and gas and, and potential uh, ugliness for investors, as Raul just mentioned. I read earlier this week, just try and tie it back to some of our comments uh, earlier on ESG, that uh, Tesla, as Roger talked about earlier, which is one of you know what many, including myself, would have thought was one of those kind of highly ESG obvious investment choices, that many of these ESG investors have missed out on what was the 300% gain over the past 12 months because it doesn't score highly on the G, and so it's not in a lot of these ESG picks. So 
there, there's so much, uh, you know, so, so many different things to be paying attention to, uh, whether it's the oil price or the ES or the G. Yeah, and I want to I want to end today um, with we're we're still kind of in the new year, right? We're <laughs> here in January, so I want to put you guys um, on the spot a little bit. I want you um, give us a hypothetical energy headline we could see in 2020 still. Um, so I'll give you just a second to think about that, but but we won't hold you to these predictions. But but give us something that we might might see in the news um, as a headline later this year. Roger, if you wouldn't mind, uh, maybe starting us off. Um, I'll start on oil. I would say this is a uh, as a headline. Uh, we're gonna see continued weakness due to demand. Uh, so I think the first half of the year will be very challenging uh, before people believe that there will be a turnaround around the corner. Yeah, I think you could see uh, some headlines around oil. EMP is actually doing better than people expect uh, in 2020, uh, wow. just because they're coming off a very low base. And uh, you know, I think people are, I think the tide is turning a little bit on this capital discipline issue. So it's both. a low base issue. <laughs> you can have both. <laughs> I think we're not going far fast, but I do think, I believe that the shale system is not per se broken. Okay. I believe it can make money. I believe also that it will expose the people with bad assets. In in my mind, whether you're playing the growth game or you're playing the returns game or something in between, the good rock wins. Yeah. And it's relatively easy to hide lower quality rock with a lot of debt and a lot of growth. Uh, but uh, when it comes, it, comes down to capital scarcity i think those those get uh that gets exposed now that doesn't mean that people with lower rock can't do better in fact in some ways they have more beta because the market's pretty good at ferreting out who they are so i think there could be some upside surprises particularly if the what i would view as the undiscounted risk in the oil market turns out to be an actual risk uh there there could be uh some nice upside surprises uh, there's some downside too, but uh, given how, how far the sector has fallen, I think it's uh, somewhat limited, particularly if people uh, do manage to hedge and put on some floors and some protection. Great. Well, everyone, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Uh, I appreciate all the great insights. And as always, thank you to our listeners for joining us for another episode of Upstream in Perspective. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. Also, if you haven't checked us out on social media, please search for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com slash energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.